Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. If you've never been in a fight before, have you ever wondered how you'd respond to getting punched in the face? Well, my guest today found the experience pretty delightful, which is all the more surprising given that he'd lived more than three decades of his life as a self-described pacifist who abhorred violence, thought fighting was barbaric, and feared he was a coward. His name is Josh Rosenblatt, and he's the author of Why We Fight, One Man's Search for Meaning Inside the Ring, which describes his decision to enter an actual MMA fight at the age of 40. Today on the show, Josh talks about why after a lifetime of being a hedonistic, non-physically oriented, intellectual type of guy who thought mixed martial art fighting was dumb, he decided to climb into the cage as an MMA fighter himself. Josh describes how he got interested in MMA fighting in his early 30s, started studying Muay Thai, Krav Maga, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and boxing, and discovered the joys of getting in touch with his long-submerged aggression. We then discuss what it was like for him to train for an actual MMA fight as an older guy, how fighting has influenced his writing, and what getting into the cage taught him about sacrifice asceticism, transcendence, and the potential for human transformation. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash why we fight. Josh joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Josh Rosenblatt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Just got a new book out, Why We Fight, One Man's Search for Meaning Inside the Ring. You decided to become an MMA fighter, start training for MMA, and actually did a fight. But let's talk about life before you decided to do that. What, what were you like before you decided to start punching people in the face and getting punched in the face? I was pretty much the exact opposite of that. I was a, a, a writer and a drinker and a smoker and a, a sensualist. And a, I was lazy, no exercise, none of that in my life. I was very much a pacifist, probably a coward, or at least I was concerned about being a coward. And really, to be totally honest with you, I didn't like the idea of fighting. I didn't like watching fighting on TV and had had not really been a fan of MMA before I suddenly became a fan of MMA. So really, I existed on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And you talked a lot about in the book about your the role your father played in that sort of worldview you had, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my father was a, a, a sweet guy and the smartest guy in the room, but he was a very cerebral guy. And he was a, he was a man of books and a man of learning and a, an intellectual. And it wasn't really in his nature or in the way that he brought me up to sort of deal with 
those sort of physical realities and that sort of classic father-son notion of, you know, I'm going to take you outside and teach you how to make a fist and teach you how to fight. It just, it wasn't him. And, and it's great. It says a lot about his character. He, he didn't, he wasn't a violent guy. He didn't, he didn't enjoy violence. He didn't think about violence in that way. But, you know, as a consequence, I think I sort of came up always with a thought in the back of my mind, you know, I, I wanted to know how to fight or I wanted to know at the very least what I would do in a fight. It was always sort of lingering there. It was a sort of a, a question that was always around. Yeah. And you, you also recount like moments in your life, you know, growing up where you got bullied or some guy did something and you just sort of slinked away and you felt kind of, I think everyone's had that. Every guy's had that experience where you're like, I should have done something. I should have stood up for myself. Absolutely. You know, that, that sort of moment in the book where I list off, you know, over the course of 15 years, seven occasions where that happened. I wouldn't say I was bullied consistently by any means, but as you say, everyone's got those moments where you, you sort of look back and you go, you know, if I just stood up to that person, I, I, you know, I, I would, I would be able to live with it a lot better. You sort of slink away, you walk away, you turn your back, you leave a situation that you were enjoying being in. And it just kind of eats at your soul just a little bit, nothing, nothing dramatic, but those little, those, those things add up. And eventually it sort of reached, reached a point for me anywhere where, where, where I sort of said, I don't want to do that thing anymore. I don't, I don't want to do the walking away if I don't have to walk away. Was there a specific moment where you went from, I'm a philosophical, cerebral writer, pacifist, to I want to start punching people in the face? I think it had been growing. I had been sort of watching MMA and getting into to, to, to watching the sport and learning, starting to appreciate its value as a sport rather than just sort of an act of barbarism. But even at that point, I, I still w- was not doing anything about it. And then I was at a party in Austin where I was living and I was thinking about MMA if, or talking about it with someone and boring them because no one I knew enjoyed the sport at all at that time. And I ran into someone I knew sort of in passing who I knew as a filmmaker and an ironist and, you know, one of, one, you know, sort of one of us, whatever. And he overheard me and we started talking about fighting. And it turns out that he was an instructor at a Krav Maga studio in town, which I had no idea about. And he said, you should come down and, and, and check it out. And I was in there I'm holding a cigarette. I'm holding a glass of whiskey in my hand. And I'm thinking, yeah, I, I, I think I have to. Like, it was kind of felt like, you know, not sort of like a, revolu- a revelatory moment. The clouds didn't part. It was more sort of like he said it. And I said, you know, what else do I have to do? So that was the moment. That was, well, you talked about you started growing, getting an appreciation for MMA. Like, what led to that? Well, again, I was, you know, sort of writing and reading about you know, films and politics and, and, and on that end of the spectrum. And I read an article in ESPN, the magazine about Kimbo Slice, who, I don't know if you remember Kim, Kimbo Slice, but he had sort of a, a quick moment in the sun there as a, a YouTube phenomenon for, he fought in backyard MMA fights, or at least backyard bare knuckle fights. And he was all over YouTube and he started to get some mainstream attention. And I'm reading this article and I, again, I was totally repulsed by it. I didn't want anything to do with it, but the article was well-written and I was sort of fascinated. And his picture on the cover was just, I mean, he just looked like the, the, the portrait of in my head of what a fighter was. And they're describing him and they're describing his fights and his knockouts. And I'm thinking, this guy is the most terrifying man who ever lived. And halfway through the article, they interviewed a couple of actual professional MMA, UFC fighters and to a man, they all said Kimbo Slice would get knocked out in 10 seconds in, a, in an actual fight. And I didn't understand that. It just didn't make any sense to me. I think my knowledge of, of fighting came, it was entirely cinematic. You know, this guy looked terrifying. He sounded terrifying. And in the movies, it's always the guy who looks and sounds terrifying who wins the fight. And when they said that, when they said he didn't have any of the skills, and I said to myself, well, something's going on that I need to check out. So I sort of put my disgust to the side and started watching some videos just to see what they were talking about. And 
it was kind of strange how quickly I became completely fascinated. And within a matter of weeks, it was sort of all I wanted to be watching. Yeah, I imagine you saw that it was pretty cerebral. Well, yeah, I mean, it was just that, yeah, for the first time I realized that I saw it as a sport. I mean, you know, when it, when the when MMA started and I remember seeing it would be played on bars that I would go to and it, it, it wasn't cerebral, it wasn't a sport, it was, it was really brutish and really barbaric and they sort of played that up. But over time it developed into the sport and I didn't realize that it had and uh, I'm watching these guys fight and you know, some of the first guys that I fell in love with watching, it wasn't simply a matter of skill, though it was, it was that too. There was skill and athleticism and all this stuff, you know, all that, all that jujitsu stuff that you just sort of watch and you go, you know, why is that guy, why are they ending the fight? I don't see what's happening at all. And that sort of sparked my curiosity. But even more than that, it was the temperament of some of these guys. Again, they ran sort of against everything I knew about and hated about fighting, which was, you know, you know, tattoo covered bros, you know, screaming and shouting and being awful to each other. And a lot of these guys, they were, they were quiet. They were, they were, they were seemed relatively gentle outside the context of beating the hell out of each other. And what really got me, I think, you know, in, in the end was the, they always hugged after a fight. The, every time there was a fight that these guys would hug afterwards. And I thought to myself, something's going on here that I don't get. And that was it. The love affair began. All right. So you started getting appreciation from MMA. You had that moment where you started training Krav Maga. When you started training Krav Maga, like, did you discover something about yourself, like that you had a bloodlust or like a violence lust? I did. Yeah, absolutely. The, yeah, absolutely. What the great thing about Krav Maga is that it just, it, it really introduced me to my aggression or allowed me to meet my aggression. I, again, I was 33 at the time. I had never really given voice to that. I think I thought it was, I don't know, somehow unsophisticated or it was a part of, it was a world I didn't want to be a part of. But the very first class I went to, I remember just, we were kneeing, we were learning how to knee someone in the, in the stomach and I'm just going crazy on these bags and I'm sweating and I'm yelling and the, the music is loud and I'm passing out because I had quit smoking three days earlier. And I mean, it was, it was, in some ways it was awful, but it was just, you know, it was just this great visceral animal thrill to be tapping into this part of myself that I had never tapped into before. And I'm sure it was always there, but I, I know that I had never touched it before and, and I, I just loved it. I mean, it just, it was, it was so 180 degrees on the other side of anything I'd ever done before. And at that point in my life, it was clear. I just, I needed that. I'd been sort of, there'd been one script up to that point. Here was this whole other thing. And it's, it seemed like there was a gigantic world out there. And it started with me giving voice to this awful terrible, wonderful thing inside me. And also, you know, Krav Maga, we've had uh, people, experts in Krav Maga on the podcast before, and a lot of people know it started with the Israeli defensive force. And so, I mean, you talk about in the book, you know, doing Krav Maga, it gave you a different look at your own Jewish heritage, right? Right. Well, it started even before that. It's before it it made its way to Israel. It was a fighting style developed to fight off uh, anti-Semitic groups and and Nazi pro and pro-Nazi groups in Eastern Europe. The guy who invented it was living in, I believe, Lithuania. And after Hitler came to power in Germany, sort of acts of violent anti-Semitism started to spread all over Europe. And this this just Jewish guy, uh, Lichtenfeld in Lithuania, he was a wrestler and he knew something about fighting. And he developed this fighting style to fight off Nazis in the street. And being an American Jewish kid, raised sort of always with the back in the back of his mind with the knowledge of the sort of near extinction of his people at the hands of the Nazis – this, though it wasn't the thing that got me to my first Krav class, this really appealed to me because I'd had plenty of fantasies over the years of fighting off Nazis. 
so the fact that it was that this was a fighting style that was tapped into and 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 born out of defending you know my people against this sort of wild completely irrational rage that that very much appealed to me had it started in in as as part of the israeli defense force i don't i don't know if i would have had that same sort of connection but but fighting off nazis was a pretty easy pretty easy thing to get behind so krav maga it's it's directly for self defense how did you go from a, a martial art just for self defense to mma which is a sport martial art yeah you're absolutely right that was a, that was a that was another big switch because i think that you know it was all well and good for me to learn how to defend myself and to tap into my anger and everything. But then there comes a point, I think, where you sort of say to yourself, you know, do I want to try this? Do I want to see what, how, how things actually work? Do I want to vie with someone else? And also, do you want to get hit in the face? And there was a, the, the fact of the matter is, is that there was, when I first started doing it, there was part of me that really wanted to learn how to hit people. But there was that other thing which said, I really want to see if I will survive getting hit by someone. I want to see how I'll respond, if I, if I, if I will run away and weep or if I will t- stick around and see what happens. And unfortunately, you can't really do that in Krav because, as you say, it's not really a sport fighting system. You're sort of being trained to cause the most amount of harm to someone in the least amount of time so you can escape. So I started doing like Muay Thai and, and moving over to Muay Thai and MMA simply because that was the opportunity there was to spar. And I really wanted to spar. I wanted to, I wanted to apply this stuff and I wanted to simulate as well as I could what I'd been seeing in these fights, which was people getting punched and punching back. What was it like for you to get punched in the face the first time? It was, it was amazing. It was just like the fact that I took it and handled myself was just, it was one of the great days of my life. I, I, I can't, can't even really describe the sort of joy that, that, that I realized maybe I'm not the coward I sort of always assumed I was. And, and I, I took it and hated it and punched back. And then, you know, sort of eventually you get hit enough times where, and this is sort of a dividing line for some people. I understand some people don't like to spar, but it got to a point where it wasn't just a matter of taking it. It was a matter of, there's a certain amount of appreciation and, and pleasure you take in it that you come to sort of need that in your life. And that happened to me pretty quickly. I, f- I fell in love with, with sparring very fast. So uh, you're a writer. And when you talk about, there's a, there's a storied history of writers who are also fighters. Ernest Hemingway boxed. Jack London boxed, wrote about fighting famously. Uh, Norman Mailer, uh, even Lord Byron, I guess he, with his club foot, he was able to still fight. And a lot of these writers talk about how writing is a lot like fighting, what do they say? Why do they think writing is like fighting? And did you find that to be true? I, I find that they definitely, they're almost like, it's for me, it's two sides of the same coin, I think. Uh, it got to a point with me where I, and where it still is now, where I kind of need one to balance out the other. I think they perform similar functions, but in, in very different ways. So for me to sort of balance out the cerebral agony of sort of you know, worrying about this word and this common moving things around and tr- trying to find the right phrase. It's a really great thing. And it's sort of a release valve to, to, to get knocked around in the cage. But I do think that there's something to be said for that idea of a person sitting alone and sort of facing off with him or herself that, you know, whether it's staring at a blank screen or staring at someone who's coming at you with, with gloves on, it's you're kind of wrestling with yourself. I mean, that's that's what it comes down to, and, and I think that's what it satisfies in me. I'm not really a team sports guy, and being a writer, I'm not really a working in an office with a large group of people guy. And I think it's so it it, it sort of addresses the same need in me to sort of 
be at some kind of in some kind of conflict with myself, but just in very, very different ways, the physical on the one side and the cerebral on the other. Did you notice your writing style change as you got more into fighting? Like, did you, did your style become punchier? I mean, I know that sounds kind of cheesy, but like, did it? I don't know if my, my writing style changed. I will say this, that became a much better writer. And for some reason, I, you know, I'm still trying to figure this out and I've been writing about fighting now for, I don't know, seven years. For some reason, it's a muse to me. I don't know why that is. And especially considering it was something that I was so repulsed by for so long, but I get to write about, for some reason, I write about things that I see in the world through the lens of fighting better than I write about them otherwise. I I enjoyed writing about movies. I enjoyed writing about politics. I enjoyed writing about basketball, but I kind of felt like that I, I, I wrote about movies and I wrote about politics and I wrote about basketball. Something about fighting, when I write about it, it's sort of like the lens through which I can view the world. So if I, I would never write an article about race relations, but I can talk about race through fighting. It's like coming at these issues from an oblique angle and fighting. I don't know why. I don't know if it's simply because we're, it's such a human thing to do and it gets me so excited, but it's, it really has made me a much better writer. Yeah. I think with, I mean, I love reading boxing biographies because like they're such great stories. Oh yeah. I mean, they're the best. Like we've had a few guys on the podcast talk about uh, Rocky Marciano um, and some of the other greats. And like, literally it's like the American story. It's always like rags to riches. They're having to deal with all these like moral conflicts about, okay, there's some con men who are, you know, who are part of boxing. Do I work with them? Do I not work with them? Then there's always an inevitable fall because they just get old and they can't do it anymore. And that's sad. Um, so maybe fighting is just like it's the ultimate story. It really is. I, I think you're absolutely right, and I think it's a great, like it's a it's a perfect American story, you know. And and the fact that boxing was so sort of the way MMA is now, or the way MMA was a few years ago, boxing was sort of loathed and con- consigned to the dark corners and illegal in, in many places, and just sort of dis- you know just hated by 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 uh, upper class society or whatever. Like you know that that it had to sort of work its way out of the shadows. I think it's just that in itself is, is a great story, but you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, these guys are dealing with mobsters and they're dealing with, you know, you know, sort of corrupt governing bodies and they're, they're dealing with their own refusal to admit that their bodies are falling apart. It's, yeah, it's perfect. So, uh, fighting is a young man's sport, but you decided to do that. You decided to do this in your thirties. When was your first fight? How old were you? I was 40. Okay. 40. That's, that's like, you're like geriatric in the oh, yeah. MMA world. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, how did that? You know, how did your age change the way you approached training for that first fight of yours? I don't know how it changed it because it's the only one I ever trained for. But I definitely there was a certain sense of self awareness I think that I had that maybe I wouldn't have had when I was 23 or 25. Um, being sort of knowing myself as long as I, I I had by that point and being painfully aware of whatever physical limitations I had. Um, I was very keen on building a fighting style and building a strategy that was accommodated that I had no delusions about what I could or couldn't do, what, you know, what, what, what my body was capable of, what I was good at. Was I good at jujitsu? Was I good at wrestling? Was I good at boxing? I sort of really honed in on the things that I knew I could handle because I assumed that, and it's sort of a something that they always tell you is that when you get in that cage, especially that first time, all the fancy stuff that you've learned and all the the, the exotic moves that you've learned and all the stuff you've tried in sparring sessions, it's going to go right out the window. I mean, when it, when the adrenaline hits you, the only thing you have is really muscle memory. So I felt like as a as an older guy, 
being aware of what I could and couldn't do and sort of honing in on a couple of things that I could rely on was my best strategy. And I think that, I mean, I don't know, I'd have to talk to some 25-year-old fighters, but I didn't get caught up in the excitement too much. I didn't get overwhelmed with the fear too much. I didn't, and I didn't try anything that was outside my wheelhouse. I just sort of buckled down and said, here's what I can do. And if I lose, then I lost doing what I'm, then I lost honestly, you know? Yeah. I mean, that was one of my favorite sections of the book because you know, I'm approaching middle age and I've noticed my sort of philosophy towards life has changed compared to when you're young. Because when you're young, you can take big risks. You, you don't, you're willing to like put, put yourself out there completely. But when you're older, you know, you were married, uh, you had a job, like there's more to lose. And some people would argue, well, that actually puts you at a disadvantage because like you're fighting not to lose instead of like fighting to win. But did you think there was an advantage to like, you know, you had, you, you understood that if there's, the, the stakes are kind of high here. I could get seriously injured or even die doing this. Yeah, I mean, I I I think that uh, it is definitely a different sense of things when you're approaching middle age. When you are middle age, I don't know what those lines are, but but yeah, I think when you go into a fight as someone who has been through a considerable portion of a life, your perspective is different. You don't think that I mean, as as important as this fight was to me, as like sort of world shakingly important as this, this fight was to me. It existed in context. I, you know, I train with guys who are 22, 23 years old, who this is literally all they do. I mean, all they think about is fighting. All they do is train. All they, their, their diet, their social life, their, every part of their world is, is pointed toward, uh, they're getting better as fighters, which means they become great fighters, but there's no context for it outside of that. I think for me, having, you know, like you said, the relationship, having the experience, having, having a, a life that existed outside of fighting, it made me approach it in a different way. And I, you know, as I sort of say in the book that I enjoyed, I enjoy training with really young people. Like I'm, I'm in a boxing gym now and I'm always sparring with young guys who are full of energy and they're so fast and they're so, you know, they're, they're so, they learn so quickly and they're, they, you know, it, give them a year or two and I'm not going to be able to stand next to them in a ring, much less spar against them. But right now I kind of enjoy doing the things that, an older guy does. Like I like to wear on them. I like to, you know, like put some weight on them. I like to frustrate them because I know that they're, they they want to show off their fanciest moves and they want to do their craziest things. And so I'm going to push them back in a corner and just, I'm going to, I'm going to bore them to tears. And I like the idea of doing that because one, it's fun. And two, it gives me an advantage. And three, I don't like the idea that they're young and fast and trying to take the world from me. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O 
C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Right. You, I love how you, you talk about uh, Michael Jordan and Larry Bird. I love that story. It's a great story. Yeah. Well, what, can you share that story? Because it's, it's fantastic. Sure. So my, when Michael Jordan was in, he was going to be in the Olympics. He was going to sort of be the captain of the Olympic team while he was a sophomore, I believe, at the University of North Carolina. And everybody knew he was the next great basketball player. And he was coming up and he was going to take over the NBA. At the time, Larry Bird and uh, Magic Johnson were the big guys in the NBA. And in preparation for the uh, Olympics that summer, this this the, the Olympic team took on sort of an all-star NBA squad just to warm up. 
this again, this is before the NBA, the before NBA players could be in the Olympics. And Larry Bird was on the NBA All Star team, and he didn't like the idea that Michael Jordan was had gotten this reputation was and was coming up behind him to take the league away from him. So during the warmups before the game, Michael Jordan came chasing after a ball that had rolled from his side of the court onto the the pro side of the court to to grab it, and and Larry Bird picked up the ball and. Michael Jordan, you know, very respectfully said, hi, Mr. Bird, could I get the ball back? And Larry Bird looked at him and took the ball and heaved it over his head and threw it out of the gymnasium and back into the locker room. And he turned to Michael Jordan and said, go get it. And it was, just, I like that idea that's like, you know, yeah, you might get me one day, but it's not going to be today. And I'm going to get the every advantage that I have in the meantime. Yeah, because like, that highlights an approach that you can take as you're older. There's one approach you can become, you decide I'm going to become the mentor, the wise mentor, it takes people under their wings and just gives them the ropes. Or you can just be like, no, yeah, get out of here. And it really depends on my mood. I mean, sometimes I am. Sometimes I'm very much a mentor and I, I like to help guys out and give, give them some advice. But sometimes I just, I resent their youth and I resent the idea that they want to take the world from me. And I luckily I've put myself in a position that I get to do something about it by punching them in the face. So I do. Tell us about your experience with the asceticism of fighting. I mean, that's that was always going to be the hardest part for me. I think when I look back on it, the the getting over a fear and the getting punched in the face was probably easier for me than denying myself things that I want. I'm not I'm, I had no really no training at that and and no interest in it. I was, I had the interest in fighting. I never had any interest in denying myself things. So that was really the difficult thing. Cause you know, when you're, when you're training to fight, when you're in a training camp, there's the basic things that you have to give up for the sake of your, the performance and your ability and your endurance and the whole thing, like drinking and smoking and, and, and things like that. And I love drinking and I love smoking, but then as you get closer to the fight, you know, I had to cut in the last week, I had to cut, you know, probably eight or nine pounds which compared to what professional fighters do is nothing, but I had never been on a diet in my life. I had never denied myself any foods, but suddenly you're, you know, you're not eating bread and you're cutting out carbs and you're, and you're cutting out sugars and you're, you're cutting out all the things that make eating worthwhile and make living worthwhile. So literally that last day, you're sort of cutting out everything. You're cutting out water. Um, I'm glad I went through the experience because for better or for worse, it's a fundamental part of being an MMA fighter is the weight cut as sort of inhumane and ridiculous as I think it is, but I'm glad I went through it, but it really, it's, it's, I hate it. I hated every moment of it. I don't like saying to myself, you can't have this thing. And for such a silly reason as you need to weigh 170 pounds on such and such a date. I just, it just, it runs contrary to everything I love and everything I believe. Yeah. And it's kind of silly too, because like after you weigh in, you just put all the weight back on. It's awful. I mean, the weight cut, you know, I, I sort of look at weight cutting, two ways. I mean, on the one hand, I think it's awful. And I think it's in a sport where people consistently break each other's bones and each other's faces. I think it's kind of the worst and most inhumane thing that they do. I mean, to cut 20 pounds out of your body in 24 hours, just to be at a weight that someone else just cut 20 pounds out of their body for. I mean, it's, you know, if everyone would be honest and say, Hey, everyone is cutting 20 pounds of weight. Why don't we just actually fight at our walking around weight, it would be much more reasonable, but you know, they're trying to get an advantage. Um, the problem is that it's sacrificing performance and it's sacrificing health. And I, you know, a lot of these guys go into a cage and they're much more vulnerable to long-term brain damage because they're, they've sucked all the liquid out of their body. So it's sort of a collective insanity in some ways. Now, that being said, I do sort of understand it from a more metaphorical standpoint in that, 
you know, to, to get into a ring or to get, get into a cage and to want to harm somebody who you don't even know physically, you have to put yourself in a different kind of frame of mind. You can't be, you almost have to be two people. There's the person who walks around this on the street and there's the person who gets into a cage and fights. And there, ha- I felt like there had to be some sort of threshold that you crossed, you know, so it's a mythological in some ways, there had to be a line that you crossed between being one person and being the other person. And I think that the weight cut is definitely a way to do that. I think it's an unfortunate way to do it. And I think that there are other probably better ways to do it. But I think that it does put you in a frame of mind where you sort of say, you know, I'm so angry that I've been denied these things and that I'm so, I'm so hungry and I'm so thirsty and I'm physically miserable. And there's one person I'm going to blame for that. And it's the guy across the ring for me. And uh, so I get it. I think it's awful. And I think it's in the long term counterproductive, but I, I understand it. Yeah, it sounds like a ritual that just sort of puts you in a spiritual mindset to enter the ring, right? It, it absolutely is. It's totally, a, it's a ritual thing. And, and I, and I get it, but you know, there are other ritual things, you know, I, you know, I think if you had put me in the ring nine pounds heavier, if, if I had walked into the cage without having denied myself chocolate and bread, I think I would have found a way to realize that, that I was, I, I was entering a new world because I was half naked in a cage with some guy wanting to harm me rushing across the cage at me and everyone's a bunch of drunks are screaming. I, you know, it, it, I, I was in another place. I didn't, I didn't need a weight loss program to, to, to get my brain there. And another insight you had while you were doing this is that when you do the cut and you're doing all this training to become an MMA fighter, you're, you're optimizing your body and your mind for fighting. But so there's a downside that over-optimization, you, you in fact become more fragile. Can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of the, the, the greatest irony about fighting is that, I mean, you, you, I was far and away in the best shape of my life when I was training for this fight. And you've really, you know, through the training regimen and through diet and through weightlifting and running and all these different things that you do, you really get to a point where you're just, you, like you said, you're optimized at, at that moment, the fight starts, you were in peak physical condition, but at the same time, you're completely vulnerable because you're, there's nothing, you know, the smallest flaw, the smallest break, the smallest twist or tear, and kind of the whole system falls apart. You know, during the course of your daily life, if you twist an ankle or you jack your wrist up a little bit, it might not really change the way you go through life. When you're training for a fight, though, it can be everything. And I remember feeling at several points during the training that I felt like a, a, like a strong wind would make me sick or that a that the, the, the wrong move on the jujitsu mat would really cause me a lot of damage. Something I would not have felt six months earlier when I was just training for fun. I mean, it really is sort of a, a remarkable thing how finely pitched you are and how vulnerable to the slightest breeze you are. Well, and you experienced a, a setback. You got injured when you're you know, rolling, doing jujitsu during practice, and it sets you back a few weeks. I mean, what was it, what was it like when you found out you couldn't train like you had been usually? It was it was it was awful. I mean, it was I did I was in the I was a, I was sparring jujitsu one day and and uh, just got my hand caught in the wrong way in in, the, in my partner's jujitsu gi and it broke one of the bones that leads down the back of the of the hand. So I was out for about. I was supposed to be out for about six weeks, but yeah, it was, it was, it was heartbreaking and, and scary immediately. Cause I realized I heard the pop and I, and I knew something had, had gone wrong, 
but it did it, it, it when you're sort of that focused on one thing and your whole world is sort of surrounded and you've got this idea in your head well here's the next benchmark and here's the next step and i was going to move from this to this to this and then all of a sudden this you know silly accident i mean i wasn't even being the guy wasn't trying to submit me i literally got caught in his lapel i mean his, I, I got beaten by his shirt which is depressing but when that happens it's like you know it's, you're, you're i was thrown off completely and suddenly this project felt in danger and the book felt in danger and and the fight felt in danger. I didn't know it was going to be just six weeks, but it sort of becomes like an existential crisis. You've got this little tiny broken bone in your hand and you feel like it's preventing you from doing all the things that you're supposed to be doing. So when I found it was, it was six weeks, I just sort of said to myself, I would rather, you know, sort of tuck that hand away and hold it to the side and work on my left hand, just, just whatever I could do with my left hand. So I just went, I went to the boxing gym every day and worked on my jab and ran on the treadmill and did all the 101 things you can do that don't require a right hand simply to keep myself both on some sort of trajectory and also from slipping into, you know, pretty deep depression, which was a real risk. Did you see that happen to guys who, you know, got injured and they couldn't train? They just kind of slip into a depression and a funk? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You see it all the time. I mean, the, and especially the the people who take it, you know, the, the professional guys and the guys who want to be professional, because again, like your identity is wrapped up in it. For me, my identity is wrapped up in it somewhat, but more sort of my, my emotional state and my psychological state are wrapped up in it. So a, a hand, I'll be okay. I could keep doing something. But these guys who have to be at their best all the time, you know, they're constantly learning and they're constantly getting better. You can see it's like a matter of their identity being lost. You know, it's, I imagine it'd be no different than if you took a painter's brushes away, but obviously the chances that you're going to injure yourself painting are much, much slimmer. So, you know, fighters do that to themselves. Fighters walk a line where they're as dedicated and devoted as anyone, but the very, the thing that they're devoted and dedicated to is putting them at risk of not being able to do the thing. So it's, it's, uh, it, I don't think fighters like to think about it too much. I think too much perspective will ruin a fighter, but it's always there. It's always, it's always waiting for you. The, the, the injury is always knocking at the door and waiting to take two months out of your life. What did your wife think about all this when you were training? Was she on board with it? Was she sort of ambivalent or she just didn't really think about it much? She, so, so when I met my wife, she was, I was already in the process of, preparing for the fight and preparing for the book and knew that I would be doing it. So she accepted that and, and knew that I would be doing the one fight during the training. It was totally fine. I mean, she made some sacrifices and put up with some, a lot of mood shifts and, and put up, you know, listen to me yap a lot about things that she probably didn't care too much about, but the fight itself, she did not like, she didn't like watching the fight. She didn't, even after the fight was over, she didn't seem to be enjoying herself. Uh, she, it was, it was not a pleasant experience for her. And I think that that's sort of keeping me from doing it again. I mean, there are several things that are keeping me from doing it again, but one of them is the realization when I saw the look on her face after the fight was over, that she still was not, you know, it was all done and she was still not taking any pleasure in it, that she was still sort of terrified and miserable. You know, stupid me, that was the first time I think I realized what a terrible thing it is to ask of people who love you to sort of, to choose between your happiness and your health and, and, you know, my mother couldn't watch the fight, had to hear about it from a phone call from somebody. And my, my wife was totally miserable the entire time. And it's a terrible thing to put people you care about through. So yeah, it was, that was, that was definitely an interesting thing going through this with, with a partner. 
So let's talk about that fight. So when going into it, were you like super nervous? Like, did, were you worried about how you were going to react? Like, were you going to get freaked out and butterflies and your brain was just going to go black? Or did you have another idea of what was going to happen? I sort of half assumed that that was a very strong possibility. I didn't, you know, I was, it was so without precedent in my life that I sort of felt like nothing would surprise me. And I was prepared to be terrified. I was pretty sure I wasn't going to jump out of the ring and, and, and run away. But I was pretty resigned to being scared to a point that I'd never been scared before and reacting. I didn't know if I would sort of freeze up or I would sort of go crazy and just sort of forget my technique and just throw my hands and my fists around like I was in a bar fight. I, w- I-, I was comfortable with that. I-, I hoped it didn't happen, but I sort of resigned to that happening. When I got in the cage, though, I was really calm. I, I-, I don't I, I was, I shocked myself. I, I got in the cage and it just felt like, okay, here I am. I, this is the thing that I've been training for and I don't want to train anymore. I'm, I'm done with waiting. And I drove all the way out here and my friends drove all the way out here and there's that guy. And this is the thing that I've been thinking about for years and years and years. And I'm going to find out now what, what, what I am. And, uh, there was a real sense of calm that was, you know, but the spiritualist in me would say was born out of some sort of, you know, connectedness to the universe, but I'm not really that person. It was just, I, I was just sort of resigned. I wasn't going to leave. I was there to, to do this thing. And, and, uh, I think my, my body stopped being frightened at some point. It was really strange. It's not what I expected at all. So we won't talk about the outcome of the fight. We'll let people pick up the book, but I'm curious, you know, you said, you know, this is your search for meaning. What did you discover about life training for this fight that you don't think you would have, would have discovered uh, had you not done it? I think probably the main thing is that there's nothing firm and fixed about our lives and our bodies and our personalities. I found it, I found training for the fight and, and, and even going back further, the, the first time I went to that, to that fighting class and sort of falling in love with it, the whole, this whole 10 year process the the meaning that i found is that is that your your entire life can be transformed you can make a conscious decision to complete you know to 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 to, to recreate yourself it's i have found the entire thing totally liberating when i think about fighting and what it means to my life it's a it's a it's an agent of liberation first and foremost and transformation whether it's you know there's the bodily transformation the emotional transformation and all these other things and the sort of aggression and the comfort, you know, your comfort level with, with violence and that sort of thing. But when it comes down to it, it's just that work clay, you know, that's the revelation that I had that, that I was this one thing and out of whatever it was, boredom, desperation, rage, desire, whatever it was, I transformed myself from one person into another person. And that's a totally liberating idea in this world. And, uh, and for that reason alone, you know, fighting is my favorite thing because it's a, it's a change agent. And, and I, I love the idea of being able to change yourself just out of, out of pure will. So you mentioned earlier that you're probably not going to do another fight, but are you still training? And if so, why are you doing it? Like, what is it just because you just enjoy it? Yeah, I, I still do boxing now. I've sort of cut out the, a lot of the MMA stuff for any number of reasons, you know, Muay Thai, like I just don't have the hips for it anymore. Literally, I, I just don't have the flexibility in the hips anymore, but I love boxing and I love 
sparring and I, so I, so I still go to a gym and I still spar. And the reason is because there's nothing else in my life that gives me a feeling that can even approximate that when I get into a ring with somebody and it's, you know, sparring is very different than fighting, but it's still in that world. And, uh, there's a, a, a level of like the visceral thrill and the tapping into these aggressive parts of myself and allowing myself to express some anger and to, to take a couple of punches to the face. It's still the, the biggest thrill I have. And, you know, otherwise my life is a relatively calm, quiet affair. I mean, it's writing, it's hanging out with friends and my wife, it's drinking, you know, it's not, it's not a whole lot of excitement going on. So this is the thing that, that, that taps me into that. And also the other thing is that for sort of a, a, devoted materialist like myself, it's the one avenue I have that gets me close to what I would consider sort of a spiritual or mystical or out-of-body experience. You know, I've tried to sit and meditate. I've tried to concentrate on my breathing and I've tried to focus on a, a word or whatever. I've sat there in the lotus position and it just doesn't work for me. But you put me in a in a cage or a, or a ring and, you know, someone starts coming at you with a pair of gloves on and they're trying to take your head off. You know, you talk about mindfulness. I mean, it's really hard to think about and concern yourself with politics or your monetary situation or the state of your relationship when someone is trying to harm you. It's a very focusing, very clarifying activity. And, and if for no other reason, I, I, you know, I can't imagine stopping. I, I, I know people who do this, they're in their mid sixties and I know exactly why they do. It's a, it's a disease and it's a, it's an addiction and it's, you know, it's, it's the greatest thing in the world. And I couldn't imagine reaching a point where even if my body is screaming at me to stop, that I would stop. Well, Josh, is there some place people can go to learn more about your work? Uh, sure. Yeah. I have a website, joshrosenblatt.com and I'm on Twitter and Instagram, but joshrosenblatt1. And obviously there's, if you want to learn about me and my work, why we fight is the, is the best place to do it. I sort of poured everything I had into that book. I sort of squeezed squeeze this the sponge on on my knowledge of and my affection for fighting into that book so yeah if you're curious at all that's the 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 book is the place all right well josh rosenblatt thanks for your time it's been a pleasure yeah it's been great talking to you thanks so much my guest name is josh rosenblatt he's the author of the book why we fight one man's search for meaning inside the ring it's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere also check out our show notes at aom.is slash why we fight where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can see our podcast archives. There's over 470 there. Also, thousands of articles on just about anything, personal finance, self-defense, style, you name it, we've got it. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McCary reminding you to not only listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.